and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 183. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we do have a Q&A episode for you today. Got a number of great questions over on Instagram. So Jack, I'm going to hit you up with this first question. It says, how do you estimate calories when eating out? Yeah, so I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode. It's kind of like we're going back to our roots a little bit more. <laughs> back to the good old Q&As. Indeed, yeah. So thanks to everyone who asked a question and we'll be trying to put out some Q&As more regularly now. So make sure if you're not already following us on Instagram, the Bodybuilding Dietitians, to head on over there. And I think the first thing to establish and the answer to this one is, do you need to estimate calories when eating out? Because... Some people should, for example, if you've got a fairly strict weight loss goal or if estimating calories when you go out maybe provides you with more reassurance and allows you to stay on track more than sure that's a valid reason. But I think many people also don't really need to as well. So, Or not even always necessarily weight loss. I mm. know that there's been a number of times where you and I have both eaten out and it's the case of, do you think that this meal has enough calories to satisfy my requirements and we like to play a little fun game in the car on the drive home how many calories do you think that was (laughs) yeah Yeah. and i think as that saying goes like it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to be good enough Mm. and that's quite useful when it comes to eating meals out so we'll run through a few different options and obviously none of which are going to be absolutely perfect because you're not going to be there in the kitchen with your food scale bothering the chef. (laughs) So uh, a few things that I like to use is one, just setting a rough calorie range for that meal and choosing something from the menu that roughly fits in that gap. And this is good because you don't necessarily need to be super accurate Um, you can even err on the side of caution and if you're in a weight loss phase give yourself an extra one to 200 calories for that meal and therefore choose something that is going to fit comfortably in there so for example let's say i choose something for or i give myself 600 calories then something like a typical sort of fillet of fish with some sort of Uh, steamed vegetables on the side and some sort of carbohydrate sauce like a baked potato or even even to be honest some chips would fit into that calorie range so that's one method that I use for myself and and with clients as well you can go ahead with another method yeah so I think it is a good idea to estimate what roughly the calories would be in that meal and sometimes you're going to be in the position where you know the restaurant that you're going out to in advance and some people actually find a lot of enjoyment in planning ahead and they will look up the restaurant and their menu online and they'll look over the menu and say hmm okay i've read through everything this is what i probably want to eat at that restaurant a meal that i'm going to enjoy with the foods obviously i don't i don't want people to ever feel like they're in the position where i have to seek out the 
lowest calorie, you know, most bland thing on the menu because that's what's going to just give me a sense of security that I'm making the right choice because it really doesn't have to be that way. It's actually so incredibly freeing to one, go to a restaurant and actually just open up the menu like it's just a fresh thing that you've literally never seen before and actually make a decision right there and then. I know that I personally get a lot of enjoyment from that. I don't generally look up menus online in advance, literally unless it's for my clients, because I personally really like reading through a menu, seeing how they describe all, the, all of the different dishes and things like that, the words that they use, and I'm like, hmm, that sounds good. And also it's a bit of the sense of like an unknown. I'm like, man, all the different ingredients on that pizza, like I wonder what that's gonna taste like. <laughs> But I, I think it's actually kind of fun to be a little bit surprised. But anyway, you do generally have that option in this day and age in 2023. Almost every single menu is generally online. So you can either plan pre ahead and actually choose something in advance or just make that decision on the fly when you actually arrive to the restaurant. Some menus these days will actually try to take the guesswork out of it for you and they actually try to put in not always necessarily the macros that's kind of going to another level like I know Jackson Pios over in Bali he's made these pump kitchens now which are supposed to be like bodybuilder friendly right with the macros listed and everything but sometimes they will you know estimate the calories or the kilojoules in the meal <laughs> particularly mm. if you're like eating out of McDonald's or KFC but uh, I think that you can find more gourmet food than that if you're going to go out for a meal yeah but they might actually tell you, but um, plan ahead. That's always an option. But then I think it's the case of if you are in a weight loss phase or even if you're trying to maintain weight, I would try to overestimate the calories ever so slightly because restaurant foods just do have a way of sneakily adding in quite a few additional calories, particularly from oils that you wouldn't actually assume are in there. So they're usually more energy dense than you think. Or if you're actually in a building phase, once again, do not just go for the most bland, plain, easiest thing to track on the menu. And maybe you should actually potentially underestimate a little bit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and beyond that, like again, in this day and age, a lot of the time there'll be reviews on Google. Those reviews will have photos sometimes or on TripAdvisor and on Instagram, of course, as well. So you can maybe go to their hashtags or go to their tagged photos and therefore you might even get a look at the meal that you're mm. potentially going to eat. And that way you can maybe enter in some rough estimates on MyFitnessPal of the ingredients and the portion sizes. Mm. And yeah, that's going a bit of a, a above and beyond step. Like, is that really necessary for most people? Potentially not, mm. but... But again, yeah. in our field, it actually usually is quite a common thing and people generally want to know, hey, you know, most of my meals, I'm accustomed to weighing everything to the gram and everything's tracked and prepared by me. I'm going out to dinner with my family and my friends, like, and this is a bit abnormal for me. And I want to make sure I am still, you know, quote unquote, on track with my goals. So how can I make it fit into the best of my ability? So I think that's a great idea to get a look at, okay, what does this meal actually look like in terms of portion sizes? Because depending on where you go, you might get, I'd argue, a good bang for your buck and actually a good portion size for a meal but sometimes it might be a little bit pathetic right like mm. even something like eggs on toast think about the variance and how big or thick a piece of toast is 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's that's that. Um, but I think another thing too is if you are obviously estimating the total calories that are in a meal, you can kind of just stop there. You could be like, okay, I'm estimating that there's roughly, you know, there's realistically probably at least 600 calories in this meal, but just to have a little bit of a buffer, I'm gonna estimate 700 or 800, just to have a little bit, bit of leeway in case it is more caloric, because they might cook things in additional oils to make it really delicious. And you could kind of just stop there and be like, okay, cool. I'm gonna give myself a 700 calorie buffer for this meal. I know that during an entire day uh, to achieve my weight loss goals, I currently am on 1600 calories. So then you would subtract 700 from 1600. Voila, you're left with 900 calories for the day. And then you would make sure that you are hitting all of your other essential micronutrient requirements, getting sufficient protein in, sufficient fiber, etc., hitting your really big rocks from a nutritional and a macro front in all of your other meals throughout the day, and then kind of banking the rest of those calories for that meal you're gonna be having out. So you can do that, or you could go to the next step and actually try to estimate the macros that are in the meal. So how would you do that, Jack? Well, as I said previously, I would essentially enter in the individual ingredients mm. approximately on my fitness pal mm. or your tracking app of choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And so you'd go off what a photo looks like and you're like, ah, looks like probably roughly 150 grams of cooked chicken or whatever yeah. it may be. That much I think rice. unless you have a photo, it's probably, I would probably just use calories because mm. yeah, I was actually reviewing a menu uh, today for a client this morning and uh, they didn't supply photos, which is okay. I didn't specifically ask for photos, but I was looking at the menu and I was, even I was having a hard time like guesstimating. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a clue of the macros. Uh, even the calories was tough. Mm -hmm. So especially when it's gourmet food and um, with multi ingredients, it's quite difficult. So, mm -hmm. but even here, we're kind of just assuming someone's going out for dinner. Someone could be going out for breakfast or lunch or just a mm -hmm. meal in between. Sometimes it's actually easier on this front if you are going out for a meal that isn't your final meal of the day, because once again, you can pick something that you genuinely want off the menu. Once it arrives right in front of you, then you can get a good idea of, okay, what are the portion sizes legitimately on my plate right in front of me? And then you can actually estimate, okay, it's roughly this much meat. It's roughly this many carbohydrates from this portion of potato or rice, this many vegetables, la da la da la da right? Then you could plug that into MyFitnessPal as an estimate and say, okay, how much do I have left for the rest of the day? So there's a hell of a lot of ways to go about it. But hell, even if you are slightly over your energy quota for the day or slightly under, remember, there's always tomorrow too. <laughs> yeah. But if you did want to make it easier for yourself, Again, pick something off the menu that you're genuinely going to enjoy. But if you are in the case of like, I, I don't really want to make like an enormous, you know, just error here in terms of the actual amount of energy that I am consuming, I would probably try to pick something that is a bit easier to track rather than really, really difficult. So I wouldn't necessarily be getting a mixed curry with five different types of meats and a bunch of coconut oil and lots of vegetables and then this huge just big pot of coconut rice that's everyone at the table is sharing like you know it's a 
big just red question mark or perhaps three of how many calories are actually in this meal, it might be easier to opt for something that you order and then you can estimate the portion sizes. Okay, this is roughly two cups of mixed vegetables in this stir fry. This is roughly a cup of jasmine rice. Uh, I'd probably estimate that's about 150 grams of cooked pork. So having it be a little bit more simple. And I just say, just focus on the big rocks. Like if you were to order a burger or if you were to order a salad, like focus on the big rocks, the most calorie dense things in that meal. So perhaps in a salad, like the chicken and the egg and the croutons and roughly the amount of dressing, you don't need to be estimating, hmm, is this a hundred or 150 grams of cucumber? So focus on the big rocks and yeah, that's kind of the way I guess we would go about it. Yeah, the long-winded answer. <laughs> that is how you estimate calories <laughs> in a meal. <laughs> uh, but if you just want to make it easy, right? Just uh, don't go out for meals, eh? Mm, just stay at home. <laughs> Should have just stayed at home. <laughs> All right. These next three questions, actually, because I don't know if it's just because, well, it's winter here, Jack, in the Southern Hemisphere. I know that it's, you know, summer over in the Northern Hemisphere, but we got a lot of questions about lean bulking. So I can't even necessarily just say, oh, it's just because people in the cooler countries right now are trying to build their physiques so that they can then maybe go through a dieting phase and then look a little bit leaner and muscular for the summer months. Maybe now times have changed and people are just bulking all year round. How Mm. good. Well, it's lean bulking, so maybe they're bulking in the summer. (laughs) That is true. Yeah. Well, I guess you and I, right? (laughs) Doesn't matter the time of year. It just depends on the bodybuilding timeline. But these three questions, they are referring to lean bulking. So this very first one, it says, how many calories should you eat over your maintenance for a lean bulk? Mm. Yeah. How many calories over your maintenance? So... I'm not a massive fan of using calories in that respect because some people are so adaptive that theorizing how many calories over they need to eat is not very helpful because if I calculated my maintenance and I, because I would say if I had to give you an objective answer, I would say roughly 10% over your predicted maintenance would be a lean bulk. Mm. And if I did that, like I think my predicted maintenance is probably roughly 3000 calories and then 10% 10% over that's 3,300. So uh, I would be losing weight on 3,300. Mm. Uh, we even did an interesting little TBD post on this, remember? Mm. It was talking about like the calories that... Yeah, I'm the one who made oh, it. So Hey, I helped. <laughs> I helped with a bit of the Photoshop at the end. <laughs> but we did a little post on this talking about, okay, based on what is prescribed on a calorie calculator online, these are the calories Jack would theoretically require to gain weight at this percent of his body weight. These are the calories Tierra would be required to lose weight on this percent of her body weight. And we showed that it was like hundreds of calories off because Mm. you can be adaptive either way. Sometimes you need to eat more to gain weight. Sometimes you have to actually eat less to lose weight. Yeah. That's how it is. Yeah. I think the big ticket thing here is the... The, the lean bulk term is more so based on your rate of gain, not the number of calories that you're consuming. Mm. Because again, if I ate 4,000 calories right now, I would be maintaining roughly. So although that would be, someone might look at 4,000 calories and be like, okay, that's a dirty bulk. Whereas for me, it's maintenance. Filthy. 
So I think alternatively, what you need to do instead, if you really want to lean bulk is more so decide on the rate of gain that you want. Mm. And naturally for a leaner bulk, it would be a slower rate of gain. Mm. Uh, so therefore I would probably recommend more so like half a percent to 1% of your body weight gained mm. per month. And then you essentially need to do some guess and check in terms of calories. So I would start off at your predicted maintenance, maybe add in another 10% additional to, to put you into that rough, uh, slow, conservative gaining territory. And then from there, you need to see how your body weight responds, take your body weight, get the average at the end of the week, assess how much you're gaining, and then uh, increase or decrease your calorie intake from there to find that sweet spot for your rate of gain. And you might be able to maintain that or stay on that number of calories for six weeks or six months. You might only last one week until you adapt and you need to add in more food. Mm. So that's why it's really beneficial to actually be working alongside a coach in a phase mm. like this because they can help you and actually track a lot of that data for you and look at trends and say, hey, at the end of the day to achieve your goal, is this enough? Or is it is it too much or is it too little? Like really tracking all of those things side by side can really help to paint a better picture. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Okay, so sorry, we don't have an exact number for you. <laughs> <laughs> But this next question, Jack, it says, how much fat gain is expected if you want to minimize fat gain and focus on growing muscle during a lean bulk? So I actually did try to find out a few specific numbers for this one. So I did a little bit of math for you guys. I hope you appreciate that. But I have heard a number quoted a few times in the field of body composition science, will you say? And it's a number that is not perfect because nothing is, right? But I'd say it's a fairly good estimate. So this is under the assumption that someone is optimizing everything. They're in their pursuits to try to maximally build muscle mass. And this is talking about, okay, if you have all of your ducks in a row in terms of adequate training stimulus, good quality sleep, good quality nutrition, sufficient protein intake, you know, your micronutrient status is sound, you're living in a low stress environment, you're happy, you're injury free, blah dee da you know, things are pretty good. If this is the case and you're trying to optimize absolutely everything, you're probably in a position where realistically you can gain about seven grams of muscle per day on average. Again, that's not a exact number, but think about it. Seven grams of muscle per day on average, if there's 365 days in the year, it comes out to be about two and a half kilograms of muscle mass gained in a year as a natural athlete. And I would, I would probably say that someone with just, by definition, that would be middle of the road genetics. Mm. Like not incredible genetics, not poor genetics. So yeah. average genetics. Yeah, roughly if you're trying to do everything right, you're gonna gain about two and a half kilograms of muscle in a year. I think that's pretty decent. Mm. <laughs> but if we're actually looking about, okay, then what should your rate of gain be to actually put on muscle mass? We generally quote that you should be trying to aim for 0.5 to 1% of your body weight gained on average per month to really maximize your ability to put on muscle mass. So if you took the average person in this industry and I'm combining both males and females, I'd say it would be about 80 kilograms of body weight. I recognize that for most females in this industry, that's probably on the higher end. I recognize for most males in this industry, 
It's probably on the lower end, but let's just say 80 kilograms, okay? Smack bang there. 0.5 to 1% of body weight, if someone was 80 kilograms, is 400 to 800 grams of body weight gained per month on average. Now across an entire year, that comes out to be 4.8 to 9.6 kilograms worth of body weight. Now again, if we're coming back to the fact that you can probably build about 2.5 kilograms worth of muscle in a year, then to answer this question, how much additional body fat do you really have to gain? So looking at that, you could gain 2.3 kilograms of additional body fat per year on top of your 2.5 kilograms worth of muscle mass if you're aiming for that 0.5% of body weight gained on average per month while optimizing everything. Or if you're gaining closer to that 1% of body weight on average every single month for a year straight, you'd be gaining close to additional 7.1 kilograms of body fat on top of that 2.5 kilograms of muscle mass. So there's some numbers for you. I hope you had a pencil and paper to write those down. But the point is there is that to actually gain a similar amount of muscle mass, you can kind of almost gain threefold the amount of body fat if you're trying to gain weight quite aggressively for a long enough time period. And begs the question, is that necessary? Yes, it is necessary. If I had to give a yes or no answer. For everyone? For, for most people, like considering the population or the demographic of this podcast, like I think what I, how I would answer this question is if, if body fat is your prime concern in your pursuit to build muscle, then you might be missing the forest for the trees. Mm. Because I would say that gaining some body fat and getting a little uncomfortable is where some of the best progress is made, both in the gym and therefore in terms of muscle. Because... You're not going to be at your best, or for most people, they're not going to be at their best performance in the gym. For other sports, maybe so, like sprinting or some other sort of aerobic-based sports. But unlikely in the gym, you're going to be at peak performance at a lean, like a truly lean composition. Mm. So therefore, we know that performance in the gym is correlated with muscle gain. So therefore, is it worth putting on some additional body fat in order to reach new heights of strength and therefore new muscle tissue? I would say yes. Mm. Like I I went up from my stage weight, for example, like a truly lean composition, you could say, <laughs> is 76. I got up to a peak of 95. Mm. And I would say that my comfortable territory where I'm quite lean, uh, athletic, so to speak, would be 85. So mm. I still went up 10 kilos beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think purely looking at body fat and trying to get into the weeds in terms of, okay, this is how much weight I should be gaining X, Y, and Z. Uh, would you even notice two kilos of body fat gained across a year? I'm not sure if you would. No, not everyone gains it a little bit differently. You know, mm. some people it's quite evenly dispersed across their entire body. Some people, they gain it in places that they love. Like some girls' butts just look amazing. <laughs> some people gain it in very strange places. They're like, why are my forearms all squishy? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. But yeah, so yeah, I think I think you answered that question really well though. Mm. And I think people need to accept that one, gaining body fat is fairly inevitable if mm. you want to optimize muscle gain. And yeah. two, sometimes body fat is a blessing when it comes to strength-based mm. sports. 
Yeah, I think that's the big take home is the fact like if you do want to put on some muscle mass, you are going to have to gain a little bit of body fat in the process. Mm. And how many times have we said that? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, say it again for those in the back, right? But the thing is here is that it is almost a one to one ratio, even if you're trying to go toward that lower end, Mm. because like I said, if you're gaining 0.5% of body weight on average per month for a year straight, and you're trying to gain about two and a half kilograms worth of muscle during that year, that does come out to be close to 2.3 kilograms of body fat as well. So it's all actually almost a one-to-one. Mm. Mm. Obviously, give or take, depending on your exact body weight. But the, the point is, is that you're not just going to gain pure muscle and zero body fat in the process. You're going to mm. have to bite the bullet. But I would say there has to be a happy medium and it's going to depend on everyone because especially if you're always going up toward that higher end, right? And then to really try to secure just over two kilograms of muscle mass in a year, but you're always in the, in this position where it's like, oh, well, I've always, I always have to diet off, you know, close to like nine kilograms in the process or something like that. Then once you finally get down to that point, if you have to lose more total body weight every single time that you diet, could you potentially then risk maybe losing a little bit of that muscle mass that, that you actually built? Mm. <laughs> so there's always that trade-off. I think somewhere in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Just, just don't get too out of control. <laughs> so this final question, still related to the lean bulk, Jack, says, what rate of gain during a lean bulk would you expect for a lifter with over 30 years of experience? Yeah, so I think we're going to be careful here and not be too repetitive because mm-hmm. we've discussed two lean bulking <laughs> questions. Uh, basically, when we think of someone with 30 plus years of experience, like uh, the good side of me wants to say, okay, that means that person has uh, a really, really good amount of muscle because they've maximized 30 years in the gym. And therefore, by definition, we know that the more muscle you have as a natural, the less your potential for muscle gain is for, for the most part. So therefore, we'd expect someone's rate of gain to be on definitely on the lower end if you've got um, 30 years of, of in the gym experience, which I mean, that's crazy because like for me, I've got 10 years and I can't imagine triple that. That's a lot. So but also we have to remember that that person again by nef- definition is on is slightly older and they might be verging on that side where their propensity for muscle gain experience aside is is lower because they're slightly older so all answers are kind of pointing towards a lower rate of gain mm. even if they weren't heavily muscled we don't also have to get too nuanced about this either because we either choose a rate of gain that is slower or more moderate or fast. And just like someone, anyone else, there are, there are things that are coincided with this. So a slower rate of gain will have less fat gain, but also potentially less muscle gain as well. And then obviously the contrast for a higher rate of gain. So I wouldn't, uh, again, miss the forest for the trees. And, and I think just looking at these principles in the basics will help you more than overanalyzing and, and essentially getting paralysis by analysis. Mm-hmm. And of course, 30 years of lifting experience and being in the gym, that is super impressive. There's no doubt about it. But also I think that you need to treat the person on a case by case and at an individual level and actually see, okay, 
regardless of the amount of time that they've spent in the gym, what does their physique look like right now? What is their level of muscularity? What is their diet and their training history? Because it would be really nice to assume just based on decades of being exposed to weights that someone would look a certain way, but that's not always the case. It's not always the case that just based on how long that you've been going to the gym for that ultimately just makes you an advanced trainee. It's, it's often actually not the case. People can spend a number of years or sometimes a number of decades in the gym and still actually be close to that kind of beginner intermediate level if they haven't actually really pursued coaching with someone or really actually invested themselves in more personal development and just tried to really capitalize on their time in the gym. So mm. I think that's just something important to say as well, which of course would then tie in with, okay, regardless of how much time they've been in there or they've been going to gyms before, what's their physique look like right now? And hell, like, you know, I on paper, maybe I would just assume, oh, we should aim toward a lower rate of gain, 0.5% of their body weight per month. Maybe they're underweight. We yeah, don't know. In exactly. which case you'd want a high rate of gain. Exactly right. Yeah. They might actually really be able to almost experience some newbie gains in a sense. And that's mm. probably going to happen if you're going closer to that 1% of body weight gained on average. So it just depends on like, what does this person actually look like? What's their true situation? And uh, get some more details. So can be either either. For sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we have time for at least one more question. Okay. Well, Jack, this one is a nutrition related question. And oh, it says, <laughs> it is fitting, isn't it? It says, why do some athletes increase fats and decrease carbs on their rest days? Yeah, so I feel like this was popularized by the UK uh, bodybuilding scene. That's certainly where I saw it first. And I think there's a bunch of reasons why they might be doing it. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I think it started was because there's that notion that, okay, we're not using carbohydrates as a fuel source as much on a rest day. And we're more so actually using our fat stores as an energy source and therefore it makes sense to lower carbs and increase fats and also i know in, especially in the uk more than over here for only from what my little bubble has seen on social media they do tend to look at like blood glucose and insulin insulin sensitivity quite a lot more than uh, in australia mm. and that's also reinforced by like glucose disposal agents and digestive enzymes and mm. all that sort of stuff so the way that I found out people were doing this is because, you know, people often post their physique updates on Instagram if you're living in this world, and then they'll often quote what their macros are, and they'll have two different sets of macros. They'll have TD macros, which is training day macros, and then they'll have NTD, which is non-training day macros. And yeah, it is common that protein's fairly similar, but then on a training day, carbohydrates are a bit higher, fats are a bit lower, and then vice versa. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I guess the interesting thing is that I, I do have a coach from the UK. Mm. So, but AJ is is very conservative. in Like he doesn't do huge differences in terms of my carbohydrate and fat intake from training days to rest days. And I think we, we purely do it because... I am far less active on my rest days and therefore I just genuinely don't need as much food. So my calories on a on a 
uh, training day are about 500 higher. Mm. And then we usually reduce our carbs by about 100 grams, so 400 calories, uh, but we increase my fat by 10 grams. So not, not a huge amount, just a fairly conservative increase. Then we actually reduce my protein as well by 25 grams. Mm. So, um, and, and I think that's partially because I'm getting in a, a fair bit less trace proteins through uh, the reduction in carbohydrates. Mm. So like one that allows me more nutrition through an increased uh, leeway for dietary fat. So I can in, in have more like plant-based fat sources like nuts and seeds and avocado oil, etc. And sure, I'm also don't need as many carbohydrates because that's my primary energy. Like it, one, it's making up by far the most of my calories. It's the most abundant macro. So therefore it makes sense to decrease that on a, on a rest day. Mm. That's a really good point that you made that it's not just your macros are swapping in and out because let's say that someone did reduce their carbohydrates by a hundred grams, but they were eating an equivalent amount of calories on a rest day and a training day. 100 grams of carbohydrates, which is like 400 calories, that comes out to be like 44 grams of dietary fat. So it's not the case that you're eating matched calories, dropping carbs by 100, and then having 44 mm. extra grams of fat. That's like a bikini girl's daily intake, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so that's not the case. Calories are dropping overall by hundreds. Um, and yeah, it's such conservative little changes, those changes anyway, like, yeah, for someone like you, you're pretty spot on improvement season or not, but you'd even argue 10 grams of dietary fat, the average person tracking, they're lucky if they even fall in a ballpark there anyway, like plus mm. or minus 10 grams per day. Yeah, I agree. Mm. So it's a, it's not a, a huge difference. And I think in the position that you're in as well is because on a training day, your average carbohydrates, let's say, fall around 650. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that comes out to be around seven grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates. And for resistance training athletes, like they kind of quote these numbers. And generally, you want to be landing somewhere between like four to seven grams per kilogram of body weight per day of carbohydrates coming in. Even if you drop your carbohydrates down to 550 grams on a rest day, you're still falling in that ballpark anyway. So you're still synthesizing sufficient glycogen for your leg day following. Mm. Yeah, so totally in the clear. But I think it would be a bit different just based on your total daily energy intake and also your macronutrients to begin with. Like if you do have a girl who on average, maybe she's only eating like 200 or 250 grams worth of carbohydrates like on on an average day even a training day i don't think it's necessary to do all these absurd things across a 24 hours span to like be like oh see you later 100 grams of carbs which is a lot of just satiating food volume but also a lot of nutritious plant matter too just for the sake of just bumping up fats Mm. Yeah, I think it needs to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think it's probably more appropriate for people when their energy intake is very, very high. Yeah, plus we can't forget that if, let's say hypothetically, you are bringing carbs down significantly and increasing fat significantly, like you got to remember what's going to happen to your glycogen stores. And if you're training the next day, then you basically just throw in a bit of a spanner in the works for yeah. your glycogen stores because you'll lose a lot of that glycogen overnight. And... 
Therefore, you'll be you'll be rocking up to your training session, and you wouldn't have really resynthesized much glycogen mm-hmm. uh, by having so little on your rest day. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're probably doing more harm than good. Yeah, I would make more of a case for it if someone's energy intake is high. They have like hundreds and hundreds of grams of carbohydrates to play with. Also, they're in a building or a maintenance phase. But I wouldn't I wouldn't make a strong argument for it if someone's in a dieting phase calories and carbohydrates are relatively low to what they're accustomed to Um, because even if you made the argument there like oh well if you bump up fats a little bit you can get a little bit more micronutrition across the week again like you're (laughs) picking hairs because if you're talking about oh they get an extra 10 grams of fat on one or two days of the week it's like yay that's an extra you know two egg yolks or a little bit of yeah avocado and a few cashews or something I don't think it's enough to make a enormous difference mm. yeah so I don't know people can make their arguments but I guess you've heard our takes yes <laughs> for sure all right well uh that was a good number of questions but I've got one last one for you Jack <laughs> what is something that Jack Radford Smith learned this week yeah so I I'm gonna try and stick to the the fishing theme <laughs> typical well, and people seem to like it as well. <laughs> so, yeah, since coming back from holiday, we've uh, we've fished twice, and I've learned a few things already since uh, fishing in the winter. <laughs> One is that our um, bait pump actually broke, and we needed to replace a component of that for the suction. Uh, so now I know how to refurbish a bait pump <laughs> in future. And the second component is. That uh, Taylor is a, which is a type of fish, is now in season where we live, and uh, it's it's not just a myth. No, it's not. The legendary yeah. Jack Radford Smith, he actually caught one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, quite exciting, really, because where we live in Nudgee Beach, uh, the the fish are quite relatively small, uh, still legal size to eat, but the Taylor are actually quite a decent size. I think the one I caught yesterday was like 35, 40 centimeters, and of course, nowhere near as big as what you get off a boat, but off the beach, it's um, it's quite fun and definitely a too large of a meal even for Tierra to finish last yeah. night. I was in one of those very rare situations where I was like, I physically cannot eat any more of this meal because like anyone who knows me or who has ever known me knows that I have an appetite. I can put down a meal and then some. <laughs> I like food and it's actually really hard for me to feel legitimately satiated to the point where I'm like, I don't want another bite. But holy moly, there's a reason why bodybuilders go for white fish. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if they're going for the oily varieties, but like especially a white oilier variety very very satiating but this fish was huge because we usually catch little whiting which the legal size is 23 centimeters and like to have a meal you need like at least two of those guys and we just you know barbecue them whole and then pick the meat off the bones but this tailor was big and uh the fanciest thing that we've done with a fish so far but like we wrapped it in foil with a bunch of spices put these little slits in the meat because like the the flesh was thick and then like surrounded it with a bunch of different vegetables and then we wrapped it in foil and we put on a hot barbecue for half an hour it was so good it was so good but like i ate half of this thing and i was like there's no way in heck i'm eating another bite so um thank god we're both picking at it for dinner with our forks Mm, our forks yeah (laughs) well your spoonchula Mm. oh and fingers (laughs) 
<laughs> nah, but uh, no, that was good. I now we just got to catch another one. Yeah. Mm. What did you learn? Okay, well, what I learned, uh, so th- I learned this actually on our holiday while we were away because. You know iPhones these days, how they have three cameras, all fancy and shiz. <laughs> so if you guys didn't know, the three cameras, they don't like just take a photo with all three cameras and then like try to combine it for like this ultimate high quality picture. Each camera is a different lens. That's why when you actually look at your camera and you can press the little buttons down below where it's like 0.5, 1, and 2, that's a different lens for each one of the three cameras. So I actually wanted to find out, hey, which lens is which? And we were actually at my sister's wedding and we were trying to find it out in a very hilarious way where I was looking at the three camera lenses and then my sister was on the other side of the screen trying to touch the 0.5, 1, 2, and then I was trying to see which lens would move. But little did I know she was actually just taking photos of my face super duper close up, which was just hilarious. And in the process, I could not tell which lens was actually moving. So do you know what I did? What I should have done in the first place is I did a Google search. So if you guys actually look at the back of your iPhone right now, if you have one, it has three lenses. So it has one called the telephone lens. So this is the lens that's actually in that top left corner. And when you press the two on your screen, it's the one that zooms in. So that's the telephone lens. Then you have the wide angle lens, which is the one on the bottom left corner. And this is the one that's basically like your standard camera lens, the one that's just on one. And then you have your ultra wide angle lens. And this is that one in the middle, which is over on the right. And this is when you press the 0.5, it makes everything look fish-eyed. So uh, that's what I learned these, uh, these past few weeks is actually which camera lens is which. Mm, very valuable. <laughs> well, there you go. I hope, I, I'm sure some other people out there, I can't be the only one on this planet who didn't know that. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe one other person. <laughs> Probably Sam or Boston. <laughs> oh, well, when they listen to this podcast, they'll they'll find out, right? Mm. They they can fully understand. And of course, there are there are number one fans. Yeah, there are two listeners. <laughs> Ratings through the roof. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. And if you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next time for another Q&A.